everyone. This is Beige with Public. Today we have a great interview with journalist and author Sam Quinones. His most recent book is called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. It offers a deep dive behind the headlines into the deadly epidemic that's currently ravaging the country. Sam is a former LA Times reporter, but before that, he was a freelancer based in Mexico City for a decade, which is sort of like the journalistic equivalent of being a cowboy. Previously, he'd cut his teeth on the crime beat in Stockton, California in the 1980s, also a kind of Wild West situation. And these days, Sam's reporting continues to unearth inconvenient truths about the intertwined drug and homelessness crisis and the failed policy decisions that perpetuate it. In this episode, we talk about why today's synthetic street drugs are so lethal, how they keep people mired in homelessness, the connection between Mexican drugs and U.S. guns, what harm reduction activists get wrong, and what could be done to turn things around. You can find links to Sam's fine work in the show notes. Hi, Sam. Thank you for joining us. I just wanted to start if you could maybe give our listeners a little bit of background about how you got into journalism in the first place and how you ended up on this beat. Uh, sure. I grew up in uh, Southern California, town of Claremont. Uh, my father was a, a, a literature professor at the Claremont College. It was at CMC. And uh, my mother was an elementary school teacher. Um, I got into journalism a few years after college. I did not study journalism. I'm actually pretty happy about that decision, actually. Um, it's better, I think, to study something else. Um, I got into it and finally, and I was kind of got into it by doing a lot of internships and working part time to support myself in San Francisco. This was in the mid 80s. I uh, got a job at the Orange County Register. And from there, I went to the job that probably first really transformed my career um, and my focus, I should say, of my career. And that was uh, crime reporting in Stockton, California, uh, where it was really my graduate school. I wrote like crazy. I wrote four or five stories a day. Um, there was a lot of crime to cover, and it was only me. I was the only one doing it, really, full time. And I really learned to be a writer, a journalist there. And it was very, very helpful. There were some very good editors there. And so it just helped shape me in ways that, I was looking for, I was looking for that kind of experience very, very deeply. And so um, I left there and um, eventually ended up uh, in Mexico. I lived in Mexico for 10 years as a freelance writer. And uh, there I began to write longer term pieces, like longer stories, magazine type stories. I wrote my first two books about Mexico um, in the, and this was from, 1994 to 2004 is when I was in Mexico. And it was another kind of very transformative part of my journalism when I began to focus on longer narratives. And uh, Mexico provided just amazing, just amazing stories. Really just loved living there um, and uh, writing about the place and all that kind of, but after 10 years, you know, it's a lot. Where were you? And so I were found- you in, Were you in Deafe? What, what part of Mexico were you in? Yeah, so I was in Mexico City, uh, but I really traveled all over because I was a freelancer. I couldn't really compete with the other newspaper reporters who were from, you know, Washington Post and LA Times and Wall Street Journal and all that. So I had to go out 
and I love, spent a lot of time out in the provinces in the in the smaller areas, a lot of time in areas where a lot of people emigrate to the United States, Michoacan, Guanajuato, Zacatecas, Oaxaca, those state, kinds of states, Sinaloa. And I really um, loved doing that, and it was a great time. But after 10 years, I decided to come back. I found work at the LA Times, and I stayed there for 10 years. And while I was there, the drug war in Mexico kicked off. And uh, I, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And when I was in Mexico, it was a very peaceful place. I traveled by bus. I had very little money. <laughs> I was a freelancer, you know, which you don't make a lot of money. It's, it's basically starvation a lot yeah. of the time. But it was a lot of fun. And, and I, I spent a lot of time traveling on my own. And with the drug war kicked up, all of that stopped. You couldn't really travel that way. You couldn't do the kind of reporting that I had loved to do. I began to cover, along with other reporters at the LA Times, what was going on down in Mexico, but also kind of its effect up up in the United States. And that is where I really got into the topic of, largely speaking, the opioid epidemic. I was really trying to write about heroin traffickers from Mexico. Now that we were seeing huge increases in amount of heroin coming up from Mexico, a lot of new seizures, and I could not explain that. I didn't know, understand why that would be. Began writing about this little town in uh, the state of Nayarit in Mexico, where everybody came to the United States to sell heroin, very much like pizza delivery. And I couldn't, I wrote about it, it was fascinating. I went down to the town, I did a lot of reporting about it, and interviewed people who were from the town in prison, that kind of thing. But I didn't understand why they would have a larger heroin market. And it was then that I realized that I was on the small story, the much bigger story was the story of the opioid uh, revolution in pain management in American mm-hmm. medicine. And I did not know anything about that because I was living in Mexico when it all c- kicked off and, and I, I had to learn. And so I began to see that the story that I was covering was just a tip of something much, much bigger. And at, this was, I was there uh, at the paper about eight, nine years and I decided, and I got a contract to write a book about this topic, about this enormous new um, tendency in, in American medicine, which actually wasn't all that really new. To me, it was very new. Um, but I put it together with the stories about uh, heroin traffickers from Mexico who were coming up, who had a brand new market because all these people, uh, their new market was people who had been addicted to opioid painkillers and couldn't afford them or didn't have insurance anymore or the doctors had cut them off or whatever, and they switched to the street, and eventually they end up addicted to heroin. And you began to see this rising demand for heroin that grew from the opioid epidemic, which was caused by the massive supply of narcotic painkillers that was prescribed and unleashed on the country uh, by doctors beginning in the mid-1990s. And so that led to my first book, uh, Dreamland, which was about all of that and more. And then along the way, um, that came out and it did, it did began to do very, very well. No one had written about this topic in comprehensively as I had, and it began to make a lot of sense to people. And you began to see the opioid epidemic become going from a topic that was hardly discussed at all, except for in a few parts of the country to a, to a topic that was really deeply, um, part of the, 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 the national discussion and, and you began to see huge changes in budget and policy, et cetera, et cetera. Huge, much more attention than had been paid to it when I was writing 
the book, I, I remember. And that was a real revelation, too. And then along the way, my publisher wanted another book to follow that and and didn't say what, just said, write another book. You know, <laughs> like, okay. Um, and so I, be, I began to write um, uh, the book that became The Least of Us and ended up being largely about the the enormous spread, very much like the pain pills, of fentanyl and methamphetamine, only now is no longer doctors and pharmaceutical companies. It was instead uh, the Mexican trafficking world based primarily in the, on the western side of Mexico, Michoacan, Sinaloa, Nayarit, Durango, places like that. And so I, uh, that kind of um, is what led me to all of this. I really hadn't planned on it. I really just wanted to write about Mexican heroin traffickers, and it just kind of you couldn't write about that without talking about the pain pills. And then one thing led to another. And finally, here we are with fentanyl and methamphetamine and the trafficking world producing just catastrophic quantities of the stuff. And I think it's so important to understand because sometimes this point is downplayed or it's left out altogether that, but you really explain this so well, why today's meth is not the meth of yesteryear. Fentanyl is not opioids of, of before, you know, synthetics have changed the game. We're seeing this at a, at a catastrophic level. So can you take us into what are the reasons for this? How has it changed? How is meth produced and why does it, why does it matter? Yeah. Both of these, both of these are due, these issues, fentanyl and methamphetamine are due to the fact that these are synthetics. You don't longer require seasons or sun or irrigation it's all made with chemicals now. And the, the key fact is that the trafficking world in Mexico has access to almost limitless quantities of the ingredients that go into making both of these drugs from the world chemical markets, principally China. And they can get them because they control the ports on the western side of Mexico. They control uh, a lot of traffic through Mexico City Airport, and they can get all this stuff and that, that allows them to make quantities of this of these drugs all year round, uh, just in in, in relentless um, uh, quantities. With with methamphetamine, uh, methamphetamine really taught the trafficking world in Mexico why it was better to make your own drugs rather than grow them. They they mastered the 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 production of methamphetamine in an earlier time in the 80s into the 90s into two, two, 2000s using another chemical um, called ephedrine, which is found in pseudofeds and decongestant pseudofed pills and all that kind of stuff, right? And, um, and, but they could never get their hands on enough ephedrine to be able to cover more. Their production really didn't cover more than parts of the Western United States, and there were a lot of places in the country where they're just the meth that was did exist was made by meth cooks, and it was not of great potency. This was a meth that was very you know weak. They it, made by people who didn't really know what they were doing, who couldn't get their hands on all the quantity that they wanted. And so you saw a kind of a, a methamphetamine that was a party drug. It was diluted significantly with other chemicals and or other other things that that, that to dilute it, and. Um, you did not see the potency uh, uh, that it could be. And um, what happened was in 2008, the Mexican government put a restriction on the amount of, of ephedrine 
that would allow to be imported into the country. And the trafficking world in Mexico had to switch. They switched to another form of making methamphetamine, which is not new. It was new to them. Not new, though. Uh, had been done by the bikers, the Hells Angels and stuff back in the 60s and so on, uh, using a, a principal chemical known as phenyl-2-propanone, P2P. Now, P2P is um, the main ingredient in this one way of making methamphetamine. And this meth- method of making methamphetamine had really only one benefit to the trafficking world. And that was that you could make P2P many, many, many different ways using common industrial chemicals, um, different combinations of chemicals. And there are maybe two dozen, maybe more, in fact, by now, uh, ways of making P2P. So there was no way for the Mexican government, as it did with ephedrine, to crack down on one chemical. And if you have access to the, to the, to the ports, then you have access to world chemical markets. You can get all the chemicals you, you need. And what began to happen, I think, is it, beginning in about 2008, maybe even a little bit before that, in fact, because they could see that the Mexican government was going to do something about importations of, of ephedrine before mm-hmm. that, is that they began to import a lot of these chemicals and make meth. And, and the learning curve scaled up. In, in those areas where methamphetamine had been made with uh, ephedrine, now it's scaled up with regard to how to make it with P2P. And in time, what began to happen is they began to make quantities of methamphetamine that were just beyond anything they'd been able to make with ephedrine. It was just huge quantities. And it beca- began to kind of march across the United States, starting in the West Coast, L.A., Portland, various places, you know, Central Valley, stuff like that. And then marching across to um, the Midwest in about 2016, 17, 18, and up into New England by about 2019. New England had never seen any meth of any kind, no meth cooks, any of that stuff. But now they have methamphetamine, not to the degree that other parts of the country do, but nevertheless, more than they ever had before. And this was an amazing story, I thought. And this was going to be the main story that I that I thought. And so much that so that they're making so much of it that the price in most of these areas has dropped to historic lows. I mean, the price has dropped by like 90%. I was talking to a narco, uh, narcotics officer the other day, and, and he was saying that in our in the past, we would spend something like $16,000. Um, uh, 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 what was it? $18,000 a pound. Now we're spending $1,200 wow. a pound. Um, it, it's rem- it's remarkable the, the price drop, but that just shows you the, pr- the 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 production capacity. But along the way, another story became clear to me, is revealed to me by people who were um, uh, recovering addicts, and that was that this methamphetamine was causing very quickly very severe symptoms of schizophrenia. It was not just um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, this methamphetamine, like before, it was a very much more severe um, uh, creation of meth-induced psychosis, which has always been the case. We've always known that meth created this psychosis, but you never saw it this rapidly and this intensely. And what's more, you never saw it lingering long after people stopped using the drug. And I think that's also a big part of that. But you begin to see then methamphetamine starting in uh, in about 2011, 12, 13 on the West Coast, beginning to create these symptoms of of of, of schizophrenia. There's there's conjectures about why that is. One that I was 
working with when I wrote the book is that the chemicals used to make P2P maybe were so toxic. First of all, I shouldn't say this. Um, nobody really has answered that question of why uh, to full satisfaction. Um, I was writing something about which no one else had written when I was writing this stuff in the, in the least of us. And I was like saying, well, let me see. I, I, I said very clearly in the book, I don't really know why this is, but here's a couple of possibilities. The other possibility though, is perhaps now after a few years, the book's been out for two years. And now a lot of people have taken notice of this and begun to, to under, question what, what is the reason for this? And one, another reason might simply be that the, the meth is being made so potent. Mm more potent than we've ever seen. I've saw. I've talked with this narcotics officer from the Pacific Northwest, and he was saying, we used to see 35% meth in, in what we would test. Now it's we haven't seen anything below 99% in years. So it's extraordinarily potent. Perhaps most potent meth that's ever been visited on the human brain. It's likely, anyway. It's certainly in this kind of relentless capacity. And so what you are finding is that this meth is then accompanied by rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, delusions, paranoia, inability to live with other people, inability to really function in any any significant way, um, very often um, a, a root cause of homelessness, and 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 very often, even more so, I think, a root cause of why people, once they are homeless, given that the supplies are so vast and in everybody's face, that 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 regardless of why you are homeless in the first place, it's a reason why you stay homeless, why you're kept in homelessness. Um, fentanyl is also part of this mix as well. And that's a whole other, whole other story, but it, all of this has to do with colossal uh, supply mm -hmm. access to ingredients that allow the Mexican trafficking world to produce more of this stuff than anybody ever imagined possible or thought was even in the realm of imagination, really. It's just, you know, it's just so much of the stuff. So all, and so what you're seeing is that meth is now, meth and fentanyl are now nationwide, right? They're all across the country, effectively, in, in virtually every part, certainly every region there, uh, of the country. Are there some differences? Are, are there that? some ways we can compare? Like, for example, on the West Coast, I mean, I remember speaking to uh, the coroner's office a couple months ago for a story on skyrocketing overdose death rates on, you know, in all the West coast cities from San Diego to sure. Vancouver. And the coroner told me meth is King and it will remain so in Los Angeles. Um, but on the East coast in other regions, you're saying that meth and fentanyl are everywhere, but are there some differences? Uh, maybe we're seeing more trank. We're seeing different things uh, crop up in different areas. I would say that I would say that by and large, what's amazing is that the stories really aren't that different. That used to be not the case. Used to be, have regional differences in drug yeah. use. Five hundred miles away, it'd be very, very right. different. Now, what you're seeing is fentanyl and meth, meth and fentanyl, fentanyl mixed yeah. into meth. People using both drugs either willingly or unwittingly or unwittingly. Um, you're, they're usually found both in the in in the toxicology reports of yeah. people who die. It's 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 a remarkable idea that that you would have now two drugs basically nationwide from one general source, which is the Mexican trafficking world, mostly on the western 
uh, side of, side of, 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 of Mexico. You do see some areas where it's a little bit different. Meth in the Northeast is not really what it has been in the Midwest or in like Vegas or California or whatever. You do see levels of intensity that are different, but I do find it fascinating. I went to a, I spoke at a, a judges conference in um, the Midwest. So the judges were from Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio. So North, South, and all of those judges said, no, the meth and fentanyl, fentanyl and meth, Grand Rapids, Kentucky, uh, Lexington, it wow. didn't matter where you were. The story was very much, very much the same. And again, I believe that just has to do with just simply the enormous quantities that are being made out of, out of Mexico and how they've changed history. We used to have cycles, stimulants to depressants to stimulants right. to depressants. And each cycle would be like 10, 15 years or something like that. Now there's no cycles. There, it's all why one do you thing. Think? Because you, synthetics are always being new synthetics, new experimentations are always being introduced. Why do you think that uh, this mix is, is just staying where it is at the top of the pile and really not making way for anything else? I think it's because they're very mm -hmm. easy to make. You're talking about people who are not trained, university trained chemists, professional chemists. They may learn from professional chemists, but they are themselves, you know, pretty humble rural folks or just simple working class people. And making fentanyl is very easy. What you have found is since the production has switched to Mexico, instead of coming from China, which is where kind of it, it came from initially for the first few years of fentanyl in the United States, say 2013, yeah. 14, 15. Back then, you would see all these different analogs. There's all these different kind of chemical cousins right. to fentanyl, cyclopropyl fentanyl, acetyl fentanyl, furanyl fentanyl. You could go on and on. Um, and the reason that you would see that is because the chemical companies in China wanted to stay away from illegality. And a lot of these had not been deemed illegal mm -hmm. yet. So they make this, it becomes deemed illegal. And all of a sudden they make something else, this kind of thing. But in Mexico, all they're making really mostly is just fentanyl. Why? Because they don't care. They know it's illegal. They don't care that it's illegal or not. Right. And so, and it's very simple. You, there's one chemical in particular, you can turn into fentanyl very easily with methamphetamine. It's, it's also fairly easy, easy to make. You don't need um, a great background in chemistry. The chemicals are easy to procure. And, and so you can make this stuff easily in enormous quantities. And it's, that's the, that's the business. You just want to make money and, and sell it as best you can. So those two drugs are, as you say, on top of the heap for, for some time now and maybe for some time to come. Yeah. You disagree with, uh, harm reduction only advocates who would argue for safer supply only programs that maybe don't have mandatory treatment where you just have things like Narcan or testing strips and a, a control of the supply. But with drugs like this that are so incredibly powerful, like fentanyl, why is that problematic? Why is that approach problematic? It's, it's because I, I, you know, I think there are parts of harm reduction that mm -hmm. make sense. And there are parts of harm reduction that make sense in conjunction with many other right. things. Uh, the problem is you just see that that's not really ever the case. And the, most of the time in harm reduction, it's, well, just Narcan right. people. Um, or we'll just, we'll just open a site and, and, and we'll just keep, you know, maybe just providing oxygen to them so they don't overdose and this kind of thing. Um, I, I just don't 
First of all, I don't believe, I believe that that's a bridge too far for the government to start handing out fentanyl. Um, You know, that's, that's, that's a a situation that has been created by the trafficking Mm -hmm. world. There's no reasons why the Mexican, the American government should be involved in that. It seems to me, however, uh, the problem is when you get into um, trying to keep people alive when that's all you're trying to do. I mean, my feeling is that there needs to be a significant uh, push to push people into treatment. Be- why? Because fentanyl, nobody lasts on the street with fentanyl. You may be fine for a week. Uh, being right by the, the the safe injection site, safe consumption site, whatever euphemism you want to use yeah. for it, and and you may be fine there, but 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 there will come a time if you keep using when you will not be, you know, and and I and I think there's a lot of things need to be spoken of more more forthrightly when it comes to those places. First of all, people will say, well, we saved. Um, you know, 700 people last year at our site. I've heard people in New York talk about that. No, no, no. I think it's safe to say that many of those people have died because they continue to use on on the street. Yeah. And what you have done with naloxone, which is an essential tool, very, very important part of all this is naloxone. This is not to be debated. I'm just saying that when when that's all you do, what you're really doing is not saving a life. You're postponing the time of death. Right. And so eventually you don't know whether the people that you revived are still alive or not. And frequently they are. The other thing about fentanyl is this. The, what makes it a great drug surgically? And it is a great. I've had surgery and they've given me fentanyl. It keeps you lucid and yet able to withstand the surgery. It's, it's a remarkable drug. And it very quickly after the surgery is over, it takes you right out because it co- takes you in and out of anesthesia mm-hmm. very quickly. Well, that's exactly what makes it a torment for people on the street, because now you have to use fentanyl relentlessly all day long. What it means is you essentially have to live near the safe injection site or the safe consumption site, right? You cannot really be far away. The further you are away, the more problems you're going to have, and then the more likely you're going to use something and not have uh, have any help. Um, so I'm not, I don't think we should be in the, the habit of saying no to anything, but I think we need to be, how should I say? I think we need to be forthright about what we're talking about and how fentanyl changes everything. This is the problem. Fentanyl is such a beast. The, the, the withdrawals are so brutal that you need, uh, the, you, the people need to be pushed. Simple as that. They need to be pushed. Otherwise, they're going to die. There is no finding readiness on the street. You see this all the time. People say, no, 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 I'm fine. I don't need, I don't want any treatment. What they're really saying is fentanyl has me so strung out that I'm terrified of being away from it, of having to go through any kind of withdrawals and that kind of thing. What that really means, too, is that very soon uh, this person's going to die. There's no such thing, I don't believe, anymore. With fentanyl and meth and the quantities and the potency that we're now seeing it on the United in the states, streets of the United States, there's no such thing as a minor drug charge. It's all life or death. That person with a meth pipe, that person with with a with a piece of tin foil who's smoking a, a pill um, uh, with a straw on this foil, that person is this far away from dying. This is not a baggie of marijuana 20 right. years ago. These are life and death issues we're dealing with. And to say that's a minor drug charge is really to, to kind of disparage the life. 
of that of that person say yeah he'll, he'll be fine he needs to he needs to find readiness there is no finding readiness on the streets of the United States with the meth and fentanyl supply the way it is before meth drives people mad and fentanyl kills them that's the point that there's no time there's no time anymore for this I know, I've known people use heroin 30 right. years you do not fentanyl kills people very very quickly it's not the same it's not the same thing it's a real serious problem of of supply that is 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 changing everything how and changing how we need to think about all this different um uh uh you know all the all these topics that we thought were kind of settled when it comes to drug production profit smuggling treatment addiction overdose all that kind of stuff has changed by the quantities and the potency of these drugs. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix Podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.